This is Laura Deardo with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Marianne Christened, Director of Pediatric Cardiac Transplant, Heart Failure, and Cardiomyopathy at the Heart Institute at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. Dr. Christened, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Laura. As you introduced, I am a pediatric cardiologist. I specialize in transplant cardiology, advanced heart failure, and mechanical circulatory support in children. And I've directed these programs at Joe DiMaggio since I was recruited for this position in 2010. And at that time, Memorial Healthcare System, our parent healthcare institution, our parent healthcare institution had been planning a pediatric heart transplant program since about 2007. And this had been the brainchild of the chief of cardiac surgery, Frank Scholl, the chief of adult CT surgery, Richard Perryman, and the cardiologist who started the inpatient program at Joe DiMaggio, Dr. Mark Busek. Mark was a top name in Pete's heart transplant and Pete's cardiology until his death in 2009. And I'd been friends with Mark and had a national reputation, so after he died, I was recruited to literally build the heart transplant program from the ground up. This was to be the first solid organ transplant program at Memorial, and there was quite a bit of internal and external pressure to do it right and build a premier program that would form the cornerstone for subsequent solid organ transplant programs. I was coming to this mid-career, having trained and been on faculty in the 1990s at what was then Babies Hospital at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center and is now Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. And I learned in the relatively early days of transplant medicine about modern heart failure therapy with manipulation of the immune system and the humoral system and durable ambulatory ventricular assist devices. And when I left Columbia... Uh, I was recruited to build a program at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio in 1997. And then I went on to revitalize the stall program at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in 2002. And then I took about two years away from transplant medicine, doing mostly general peds cardiology at the University of Virginia to raise my toddler twin sons. I stepped fully back into transplant in 2010 when my sons were beginning school. And my time away from this full-throttle, high-acuity, high-intensity cardiology was a revelation for me that clinical and administrative transplant medicine was what I was meant to do. I had several offers at the time, but the opportunity at Joe DiMaggio was the best fit for me and the most exciting. Memorial is a remarkable healthcare system and that the administration interfaces very well with the physicians. The academic growth and potential here is exciting, and many physicians are escaping academia who come here. It's not a typical community hospital. And I've stayed at Joe DiMaggio since, and it's been a really fruitful journey. Our program is the largest and most active in South Florida and second in the state. We've transplanted 69 patients in our program 66 under the age of 18 with 100% one- and three-year survival, which is some of the best in the country. Our demographic is representative of South Florida, with half of our patients being Hispanic, a third are black. And this is very different from the rest of the country, 
where only 18% are Hispanic and 22% are black and over 50% white. Our other notable feature is that a full third of our patients are less than a year of age at the time of transplant compared to only 17% nationally. That's amazing and so interesting to hear your career journey with so many different stops that you've had and then finally ending up um, at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. I, I think it's just a wonderful to hear about your journey and I'm looking forward to speaking with you on some of the big topics today. Um, I'm wondering first off, what are some of the biggest issues that you're seeing in cardiology and heart surgery right now? Well, I think the first, second, and third challenges are all COVID. And I know COVID is in the news a lot now, but it really has so influenced every part of medicine, the virus, as well as the pandemic in general. The American College of Cardiology, the ACC, ran virtually this past weekend, and a prominent session on Sunday morning was pediatric cardiology and cardiac surgery in a post-COVID world. Our focus has shifted radically. We're still dealing with acute COVID and MISC, or multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And as more adults have been vaccinated, this very smart virus is finding holes in the population it can exploit, and a big one has been in children and teens. But there is hope, as the vaccine is now available to everyone over the age of 12 years. My twin sons, who will turn 16 next month, just were vaccinated this morning. So our focus is now on COVID, both for our patients and our families, and how this interdigitates into our practice of medicine. Prime topics continue to be surveillance testing, prevention with vaccination prophylaxis, mass vaccine delivery, immediate and long-term disease management, COVID sequelae, and ongoing surveillance. We don't understand that much about the disease, and it's still a new entity. The pandemic has just started 14 months ago in the U.S., and we're just seeing now those patients who were affected in the early days for their one-year follow-up visits. Initially, though, children were comparatively less affected than older adults. They still got sick, and they're still getting miserably sick. They have many of the toxic effects of the virus, pneumonitis, myocarditis, rhythm issues, renal compromise, shock. They're still hospitalized, and some require intensive care. At Joe DiMaggio, we've hospitalized over 70 children less than 18 years of age. My heart failure team and I have been the consistent cardiology providers, in addition to continuing to manage a very busy transplant and heart failure service. Cardiac findings in pediatric COVID patients can be profound, and thus far the majority have done well with full recovery after aggressive anti-inflammatory management, including intravenous immunoglobulin, infliximab, and steroids. However, we don't yet know if pediatric patients with COVID-related myocarditis on cardiac MRI, for example, will develop areas of fibrosis and niduses for further dysfunction or arrhythmia in later life. It may well be that for a generation, a typical health screening question will now be, did you have COVID or MISC? It will all become clear with time and ongoing surveillance, which is the focus of the MUSIC study, the long-term outcomes after MISC, funded by the NIH, 
multi-center registries and studies have grown up around the pandemic. It's the only way to have a sufficient cohort of patients in pediatrics, especially. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And how do you see heart care evolving over the next 18 months or so? Well, I think the main driver, again, will be focused on navigating COVID and MISC and how to fit all the changes brought about by the pandemic into practice. The pandemic and the disease have changed the way we deliver medicine, and using telemedicine visits has become a safe resource for people who can't or won't leave their homes. The challenge arises as to how to integrate remote medicine into our workflow to continue to deliver high-quality care. And there are still some things we just can't do remotely, like an echocardiogram or a physical exam. And as the disease spread has become better controlled and face-to-face visits are now more safely encouraged, our cardiomyopathy clinic has become a post-COVID MISC follow-up clinic. We'll likely have to add another clinic to accommodate the ongoing follow-up for these patients, in addition to the non-COVID cardiomyopathy patients who are finally able to return to clinic to receive in-person care. The new concern regarding post-vaccine myocarditis has raised a few questions for us internally. Despite this very rare occurrence and truly a tiny fraction of all the patients vaccinated, I encourage everyone to be vaccinated and have their children and loved ones vaccinated. Our ability to deliver excellent and equitable health care really depends on full population vaccination. We enjoy extreme healthcare freedom in the United States, and much of this is due to nationally supported vaccination programs. We no longer must worry about our children possibly contracting polio or even varicella. The COVID vaccine is a further liberation, and anti-vaxxers are ignorantly enjoying these freedoms because of the growing population acquiring immunity through vaccination. As of yesterday, this was 36% of the U.S. population and 70% of people over 70 years of age who've been vaccinated. Absolutely. I know we'll just continue to see those numbers evolve in the next few months as well. I'm wondering, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? Well, within pediatric cardiology and especially transplant and advanced heart failure, Our therapies, medications, surgeries, and devices are very high expense, high resource utilization, and all require very intensive follow-up. And there's little that we do that is simple outside of a routine innocent murmur screening. We occasionally have uninsured patients who struggle in our American system with no unified health care. There's no way for them to afford the huge expense of what we've come to consider routine therapy. And it's this inequity in healthcare that I find disturbing. Unless there's a unified global within the United States or even worldwide healthcare system, it remains a challenge to equitably serve U.S. citizens as well as foreign nationals who need extreme care. My excitement is that I still enjoy coming to work every day. 
the puzzle, the challenge of diagnosis and treatment is vastly stimulating and rewarding when the puzzle is solved. My team of two physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, and a pharmacologist have become sort of like House's diagnostics team on television. We tend to receive referrals about patients that no one else can manage. And I have a mantra that there's no such thing as an idiopathic disease. We just have to look harder and smarter to find the diagnosis. That's so interesting to think about and great to hear that your team is so cohesive and you have a great place to work there. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Sure. My first bit of advice dovetails into my last statement. In medicine, we have to develop critical thinking. And back to the house show again, his methods and diagnoses were extreme, but the character Sherlock Holmesian ability to use deductive reasoning and follow a symptom trail of clues and adapt to new evidence as it arose is something every physician and nurse should cultivate. My mentor from years ago at Columbia, Dr. Welton Gersony, would tell us as fellows and young attendings to be skeptical. Don't take someone else's word regarding an unknown referral's diagnosis. Gather the data and make your own informed decision. Importantly, critical thinking does not come from crowdsourcing or multiple opinions. It comes from knowledge and ongoingly acquired experience and sorting through facts to find what's important and what's not. My second bit of advice is to find a mentor. Everyone needs a friend, preferably one that's a little, not necessarily older, but more experienced and wiser Someone who can give input on challenging patients and professional career goals and difficult situations and help guide, the, help guide you through the struggles and applaud your successes. And if you're pulled toward a leadership career, a mentor is essential. Find a program to teach you professional development. A 360 review is an exercise that every leader should go through at least once and especially physician leaders. We're not taught how to lead in medical school or residency, and for most of us, it's on-the-job training. Memorial is unique in that it promotes education of physicians as leaders. And my third bit of advice is to protect and cultivate your inner life. What we do in medicine is fraught with intensity and crisis. Our profession is very costly, In duration of training, time expended, our own physical and at times mental health, it takes its toll on our emotional and sometimes our ethical lives. My strong advice is to take time every day to nurture a part of yourself, whether it's through athletics, some creative endeavor, religion, meditation, whatever. For me, raising my sons and keeping connected to close friends has been a tonic and on a more personal level, intense athletics and writing. I've been a writer since forever. I can't remember a time I didn't write creatively. I just completed a book during COVID and have now been writing short stories about medicine. And one was recently recorded for Anamnesis, the MedPage Today podcast, and is due to be aired later this month. That's fascinating. What was the book about that you just completed? 
Um, you'll have to wait for it to be published, but it does weave medicine into it. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm excited. I'll keep an eye out for that. Dr. Kassant, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. This has been a really fantastic discussion and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you, Laura. It was a pleasure.